Well, Michael, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Being an Engineer podcast. Um, for the listeners, Michael and I have known each other for quite a long time, and we also currently work together. So uh, there is, I'm sure, some things I don't know about Michael yet that we'll learn about, but I'm excited to start this conversation. Um, so Michael, thank you for participating. I'm delighted to be here. You have a really interesting and diverse background, probably more so than most engineers that I know. I was hoping we could start by you just, just giving us maybe a couple minutes of background. What, what are some of the things that you've done? doesn't necessarily need to be all engineering because I know you've done things that, that uh, aren't all specific to engineering, uh, but maybe you can just share a little bit of background and, and catch us up to speed on um, where you've been. Okay. Well, being quite a bit older than you, I am a child of the 60s. And in the 60s, uh, there was a lot of experimentation, psychological experimentation. And I'm not speaking just of the drug use that was pretty rampant, but also a lot of really deep searches into who we are and why we're here and what's worth doing and that kind of thing. And I got wrapped up into that uh, in, in, in towards the end of my college career, which we may discuss again later. But um, And so as a, as a result of that, I, even though I had a degree and a graduate degree in engineering, um, I left engineering school and went into the human development movement, um, where I was uh, a seminar leader, where we would put people in hotel rooms and yell at them all weekend. And <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a poor representation of it. What, what were, the seminars were about accountability, responsibility, and, and finding out who we, you know, who we really are and who, you know, what, what, is our, what is our contribution and our worth on the planet. And are we doing that? Are we living up to ourselves? And so I did that for years, and, and that kind of culminated in a, a, a rather large tangent, which was me being the business manager for Tony Robbins for about seven years. Um, and when that relationship ended, uh, I returned at that point to engineering uh, for the first time in 20 years, 20 more years since uh, graduating from college. And so after that, my engineering career has been greatly varied as well, from plastics to renewable energy to medical to defense. Um, pretty much as a mechanical engineer, I think I've had my fingers in just about everything. I want to stop and, and talk real quick about the, the human development uh, portion of it. <laughs> um, so this is something that not a lot of engineers have done uh, and is, is really kind of unique to you. So you, you mentioned Tony Robbins. So that's, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not going to focus on this because there's a lot more to talk about, but he's kind of a big deal, right? He, people know who he is. He's been around for a long time. How, how did you get involved in that? And, and what, why did you want to be involved in that? <laughs> Those are two very good questions. Well, the, the human development movement that I was involved with hugely predates Tony Robbins. In fact, he wasn't even born yet when I started uh, doing that. <clears throat> uh, I was involved with two organizations, one called EST, and the, which is the Erner, Earhart Seminar Trainings, 
and the other was called ISA, the Institute for Self-Actualization. And both of those organizations, the goal was about the same, which was to to get people to really look at their belief systems and how they they are their own worst enemies in most cases. And, and uh, through the years, I've had dozens, if not hundreds of letters from people telling me that the, the seminars completely changed their lives and they're happier and their relationships are more fulfilling and, and, and like that. So to answer your question specifically, I had just about come to the end of my time in the human development method because one of the things that I came to realize is that most of the the people that needed this information the most, and it really is, it's great freeing information that's available, but the people who needed it the most would never come to one of those seminars. So I was basically teaching, preaching to the choir every weekend. And um, I I got to a point where I, I wanted to find a better route. And I thought you know, the people that could use this the most are probably working eight to five, then going home, opening a beer and sitting in front of the TV. So maybe that's where I should be is in the TV talking to them. And I realized that also that uh, a straight up approach would not be would not work. Uh, it has to be hidden in some sort of other entertainment but to entertainment that, that is educational at the same time. Um, at the, as I was coming to that realization, a person that I had worked with in the past was leaving the Robinson uh, organization, and she recommended me to Tony. Um, and so Tony invited me to come out. I really didn't know anything about him at the time. I'd never heard of the Firewalk or Unlimited Power or any of that. Um, in fact, Unlimited Power hadn't been published yet. And so Tony uh, invited me to come out on his dime and spend a week with him in California. And, you know, from from Nashville, Tennessee, that seemed like a really fun idea. So I went out to California for a week. And from the moment Tony and I met each other, it's like we had been long lost brothers. And at the end of the week, he invited me to join him Um in in the Robbins research and the, uh, the the Tony Robbins show basically, and I, I turned him down. I said, you know, after watching you for a week and seeing you in several of your seminars, this is the Tony show. There's no room for Michael in the Tony show. He's. I said, but having been here and you kind of showing me what you're doing and showing me your books, I realized that uh, what you really need is a business manager. <laughs> and he said, well, great, do that. And I said, I don't know anything about business. And he <laughs> said, neither do I. And uh, it, it occurred to me that I was his best option. And so I accepted and I became a business manager and uh, a co-author of his seminars and participated in his his second book, Standing uh, the, the Giant Within Us. Um, and uh, so that's that's how I got to meet Tony and and. And, and he, he and I had a, a great friendship relationship through all of it. And I'm not going to speak ill of him, but towards the end of it, our paths just diverged. We, we, we both saw the future in different ways, and it was time for me to move on. And I didn't really know when I left the Tony Robbins organization what I was going to be doing. But um, it, it, it became clear later on uh, after being 
after doing a number of things, photography, graphics design, um, rewriting postscript for people, um, I finally realized, you know what, I got this great degree, I should use it. And so that's how I got back into the engineering world. It's actually it was sort of serendipitous. I there was an article in the newspaper. I, w- I was as as a graphic designer. I was always looking for work. Right, that's what graphic designers mostly do. And so I was perusing an the art history major. Yes, right, exactly. So I was perusing the newspaper, and there was a there was an article, or there was a little ad in there that said, "Hey, designer wanted at this mold shop." And I thought, hey, great, you know, they, they need some advertising or something. So I showed up to uh, this mold shop to apply for the job of designer, and they didn't mean graphic design. They meant mold designer. And the interview with the owner of that company went so well, even though I had no experience, he wanted to teach me how to design molds. And that's how I got back into the engineering world. And from there, it, it became more and more engineering and less and less graphic design. So that's really interesting. Let's back up just a little bit. Um, <laughs> before you were doing the mold design, before you were doing the, the uh, personal development, you went to school to become a mechanical engineer. How did you even decide that mechanical engineering was something you wanted to do? Well, that's an, another story. Um, I started school in 1970. And I graduated from high school in 1969. Um, and, and I was the first year of the lottery for the draft for Vietnam. And my number came up, number 89, which was called on January 29th. So I had to reapply to schools. I I, I decided rather than go be drafted to go to Vietnam, I would join. My father was a naval officer, so I joined the Navy. And uh, I reapplied to all all the colleges that I could apply late to that would offer a, a Navy scholarship so I could go as an NROTC officer, junior officer, cadet. And um, that's how I ended up at Vanderbilt. But what was going on that was so, I mean, when I got to, when I got to college, <laughs> oh, there's a lot here that I don't know how to even begin to explain it all. Um, I grew up in the military. My father, as I said, was a naval officer. And we went lots of different places often. Uh, when I say often, I went to 22 different schools before I graduated from high school. And um, one of those schools was a boarding school in England where we were allowed under the English rules to advance per our capability, regardless of our age. So in the three years that I was there, I went through six grades. Um, And when I and and at the end of that time, I was speaking French and reading Latin and Greek and doing pre-calculus. This is at the age of 12, 13. And I came back to the United States and went into the public school system in the United States, and they said, oh, he's 12, put him in the sixth grade. So my history from sixth grade through high school was I'd seen it already, and I didn't really, I wasn't the best of students, although I always made A's, but not by putting in any effort, just because I'd already seen the material. (laughs) And so when I got to Vanderbilt, when I got to college, everything changed. Suddenly, I wasn't the smartest person in the room anymore. Uh, in fact, almost everybody was smarter than me. And that was a huge wake-up call. 
the other thing that happened is Vanderbilt had, and, and I'm sure most colleges just have so many amazing options and courses available. So under the Navy scholarship, I took every course they would allow me to take. So for three years, I took math courses and English courses and sociology and psychology and, and, and all the science courses I could take and history. There was a great history professor there, and I love that. And, and I, I just ate everything I could. And at the end of three years, before I was going into my senior year, a couple of things happened. One of them was the war in Vietnam came to an end. And because of that, there were too many junior officers, and I was given an opportunity to not continue in the Navy, which I accepted. An opportunity to not continue. Okay. <laughs> and, and which I accepted. I mean, I was, I, I had already, I'd been in the Navy for 21 years at that point, and I was ready to not be in the military anymore. Living with my dad was being in the Navy. There's just, that's a topic for another conversation. I see. Okay. And so, um, but taking that opportunity meant that you're, you had to start paying your own way. Exactly. Exactly. And Vanderbilt was expensive even back then and much more expensive than I was able to do. So I had to drop out of school right before my senior year. And I thought, okay, no big deal. I'll just go get a job and put up a pile of money and come back to school. (laughs) Four years later, my pile of money wasn't big enough still. And so I went to Vanderbilt. I just had this idea, maybe, you know, maybe there's somebody there that could help me. And I learned a really important lesson that sort of pervades politics and sociology and economics throughout the world. And that is Ivy League schools. And and this is a broader than the specific topic I'm about to tell you, but the specific topic is Ivy League schools do not like dropouts because it makes them look bad. So given that, Ah, they go backwards to try to help you to finish your degree. So lucky for you. Yeah, lucky for me. So they came up with a lot of grants and, 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 and scholarships and a work study. And I ended up only having to borrow about $10,000 for the last two semesters total. And everything else was somehow magically they found money for. <laughs> so I was able now, now but suddenly <clears throat> I'm going back to school not under the Navy auspices and not under somebody else paying the bill, but I'm paying the bill. And now that even though there there were scholarships and grants and everything, but it was, it was more, it was more personal. And now I had to think, well, what, what do I really want to get out of this? And the answer was, I want to know how the world works on a, on a functional level, on a mechanical level, yeah, on, you know, how, do, how do things actually happen? How do things get made? How do, how does stuff get done? And uh, mechanical engineering seemed to be the place that would have the answers for that. And in a way, in a way it did, in a way it just opened up more questions, but that's how I ended up back in school in mechanical engineering. Um, and when I finally got, so I had, And I I had enough credits that all I had to do was focus on the engineering. And I actually managed to do it. It took me three semesters, not two, to get my uh, degree. 
Um, and then I had a number of minors that were already taken care of because of all the hours I'd put in before. When I graduated, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, but one of my guidance counselors or one of my professors suggested that I take the GRE. You know, why, why not? You know, you're here. You All this is fresh in your head. Go ahead and take it. So I took it and I did well enough. Um, I'm, I'm one of those people that I, I, I kind of goofed off in school, but I always did really well on standardized tests. And I did pretty well in the GRE standardized test and so well that Vanderbilt came back and offered me uh, a full ride in uh, a, a little office, a little computer. Back in 1977, that computer was a PDP-11. Very exciting, very exciting to have a computer in 1977. So I took them up on it. They also paid me the lofty sum of $400 a month. Oof, so I money. was... I was rich. Okay. Um, so Vanderbilt paying for your school now. And uh, it, it sounds like you, I mean, you mentioned you wanted to understand how the world works, right? How things uh, happen mechanically. Was that always just kind of a, a gift or a knack or a curiosity that you had? Or was that developed at, at some oh, point? No, I, I, I always did things like take doorknobs apart and irons and toasters and usually they were unplugged, but not always. So I learned a little bit about electricity early on. Um, but I, I did like to take them. That brings up an interesting <laughs> yeah, okay. point. Not, not sometimes they were plugged in and sometimes they weren't. Maybe that would explain some <laughs> other things. But uh, the the point I'm talking about is uh, you mentioned that you, you had always been interested in things like that. And myself as well, I've always been into mechanical things. I remember when I was a kid, I had this Michael Jackson cassette tape, uh, and um, I decided that I needed to build an alarm system around this, and I didn't know anything about electronics, but I did, I was mechanically inclined, I guess, so I put together this crazy system with um, paper clips and, and tape and like a bell and things, and when someone lifted this Michael Jackson tape out of its holder, uh, Rube Goldberg happened and a big gong would sound at the end. But my point is, I don't know why anyone would ever want to take my Michael Jackson tape, this eight year old kid with it, but that was, I was convinced that was going to happen. Anyway, I was always, uh, into mechanical things. And what do you think? Opinion here, people that become mechanical engineers, is that an aptitude that is developed at some point? Or do you think that's just kind of innate? That's that's who a person is for you know a long, long time. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I I think that you know this is interesting. It gets back to my psychology and sociology classes at Vanderbilt. Um, you know the nature versus nurture. Which is it? Uh, I I firmly believe that anybody that has any remote interest in anything, if they apply themselves and keep at it, will eventually develop the aptitude that some of us seem to have naturally. Um, that's just an opinion I have. I don't know that I have any evidence to back that up, except that I have, through the years, done things that I'm hugely unsuited for um, and yet seem to by applying myself long enough, turn it into something that 
I'm okay at and maybe even pretty good at. Um, a great example is music. I can't carry a tune. I can't sing, but I love music and uh, have learned to play a number of different instruments uh, just through pure stubbornness. <laughs> and so to answer your question specifically, <laughs> I, I think that if anybody is interested in something like engineering, they don't have to already be a, a nerd, that they can, they can become a nerd. Well, I have to agree with that. Um, uh, we won't get into it right now, but I'm very interested in training and in, in, in particular training engineers, people who are not engineers, training them to be engineers. That's a topic for another time. But also, I will say that after 10 years of persistent dedication and encouragement, I have learned how to consistently do the dishes at night after my wife finishes cooking the meal. So uh, another data point that uh, tells us people can learn new things even if they don't have the aptitude to begin with. Okay, um, I I was part of this uh, uh, program for a year, or so called Strategic Coach. It, it's it's an organization that that uh, teaches entrepreneurs and business owners how to be better entrepreneurs and better business owners and. Uh, it's, it's run by a guy named Dan Sullivan, who's really interesting. His big thing is he just spends all of his time thinking about entrepreneurs and how to help them. And one of the uh, one of the um, principles that that he's come up with is this idea called unique ability. And it's this idea that everyone has something that they're really good at. Um, and it, it, if if you focus on that thing. It is the thing that will, A, give you the most joy in life and in what you do, but also, B, have the most impact because you're just already so good at it. You know, it's this thing that you don't understand why other people can't do it because it's so easy and it comes so naturally to you. Do you think that you have a unique ability or a few unique abilities, or do you think that the idea that people have, you know, one or two things that they're just exceptionally good at. Is that just a, a load of rubbish? I, I don't know that it's a load of rubbish, but I don't know that I 100% agree with it. Um, again, I, I think it comes back. To something, What's your take? I, it on comes it? back to something I said earlier, which is I, I think it's wherever we choose to apply our attention. But wouldn't wouldn't a person choose to apply his or her attention somewhere that they already have? you know, some kind of innate ability? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think I've chosen to apply my attention to things I did not have an innate ability in. Um, and, and, I, and I know that as a, as a manager, an engineering manager, um, I often have to apply my attention to details that I would just as soon not really pay attention, a lot of attention to. But in order to get the job done well... I have to. I have to focus on those things, and I have to become extremely detail-oriented in order to do the best of my ability. And so, um, I think you know, for me, I mean, I remember we, you know, we did at Pipeline. We all did that unique ability, those exercises, and I kind of came away from it thinking, well, I don't know, you know, to to me. Um, I know it, particularly in this world where there's more and more and more to know about everything, I still value the idea of the Renaissance person, somebody that's 
that's pretty good at lots of different things. Um, and I know that my interests are hugely varied and, and span lots of things way beyond engineering and mechanical engineering and biomedical engineering. Um, and, and I'd like to think that I'm pretty good at some of those things that don't, that are not part of my regular routine. Yeah, I think I'm very much the opposite. I, there are a few things that I really like and I spend a lot of time focusing on. And then other things like washing the dishes, I'm not very good at and I just I can't get myself to be interested in them, you know. Uh, I guess it's the idea, this idea that's kind of been trending for several years. Focus on your strengths, not on, on your weaknesses. Um, but everyone has a different take on that. So uh, um can can you share maybe one uh, one great success and one I'll say abysmal failure, but if you, you can learn something from it, it's not abysmal anymore. But can you share uh, one success and one failure that you've had in your career, and and maybe talk just a little bit about the lessons that you've learned from each? Sure. Um, one success that comes to mind is. Um, a medical device. Interesting. We come back to engineering again, but it's a medical device that um, a, a physician we were working with had this idea of combining a bite block and an airway. And the the design was such that when you put the two of them together, it wasn't immediately obvious that there was any way to injection mold this. And this had to be made out of PTFE or some other biocompatible material that was at one time, at one in, in the same soft enough to go in a patient's mouth and be bitten down by their teeth, but also stuff, tough enough, sturdy enough that they couldn't crush it with their teeth. Um, <clears throat> and since it's providing an airway, it had to stay open, even if there were things pushing against it. So the wise people in the room all said it couldn't be done which was all I needed to hear. And so I went off and figured out how to do it. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Challenge <laughs> accepted, exactly. And uh, in fact, we I am now named on the patent for that. Uh, it's, it's, it's an airway bite block that wow. is, is out there and is being used. And it, and it's, um, it, it did do some, I mean, I, I think that, you know, going back to, I told you that my first engineering job was with a, an injection molder. And one of the things that he made me do is he had a bunch of books about injection molding that were from the 40s and 50s when injection molding was brand new. And he made me go back and read those books, even though you would think, oh, that's really old information. For example, if you read a book about computers from the 60s, it would be pretty old information and maybe not relevant. But it turns out that the injection molding books um, are still relevant. The, the the ones from the 40s and 50s, nothing really has changed. They've come up with a few new gizmos, but more or less, it's exactly the same. And what it did was it gave me a broad understanding of what people were looking for and how they were figuring out how to do these things um, in, in an injection mold. Injection molding, is there's a little bit of magic to it. And so applying it to this bite block airway combination, I figured out how to make it, it, even an automatic. This wasn't even a hand load. It was an automatic tool that could function. And, and it, was a, it was a variation on a very weird unscrewing tool, but it worked. And so that was, that's a pretty big win for me. 
What what was what was your takeaway from that? What what was the lesson learned from that success? Um, I, I don't. I, this is a very naive thing to say, but my lesson learned is, you know, that nothing's impossible, and and people that say that things are impossible are just taking the easy way out. <laughs> now I know that that's not universally true, but. My big takeaway from that was there's there's always a way. That's actually something that uh, Tony Robbins used to say. There's there's always a way, you know. If the if the if the desire if the will is strong enough, there's always a way. Uh, I recently read a book called "Can't Hurt Me" by David Goggins. He was this um, Navy SEAL and and other military special forces um, uh, guy. And he talked about he got into this kind of second secondary career as as a uh, what do they call it? not just a triathlon but uh, like where you're running 150 mile marathons uh, ultra marathoner yeah an ultra marathoner and and he says in his book that um, most people when they get to that point where they feel like They've given everything they have to give. Uh, they're just, he's talking about, well, not just physical. He's talking about physical mostly, but but mental as well. And he says that once you reach that point where you're kind of just done, right? You don't have anything left to give. You, you actually have another 40% to give. That's what he has learned with these ultra marathons, you know, running 150 miles in 24-hour period or, or something like that. Um so I, I think that's applicable or, or related to what you're saying is that maybe it's not universally true all the time, but a lot more often than we think, um, things that seem impossible maybe aren't as impossible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, one of my one of my favorite courses at Vanderbilt when I was an undergraduate under the Navy auspices is I took a poetry writing course. <laughs> from like um, all great uh, engineers do right yeah all great engineers do right and, and <laughs> it, it was it was a fabulous course um it was taught by this fairly well-known poet that was on staff at Vanderbilt who had hair to his shoulders and an eye patch because he had his eye had been shot out by a friend with a bb gun when he was 12 the source of a number of poems, I can tell you. Um, but poetry forces one to, um, to, to really condense, uh, at least the way he taught it, to condense an idea into just a few syllables and to get it so that it's, you, you convey the whole of it in just a few words rather than many paragraphs. And it, it's a tremendous discipline, and, and, and I really appreciated that class so much. And one of the things he would almost always write on my poems when he'd turn them back to me is there'd be a, somewhere on it, there'd be a sentence that said, this is interesting, Michael, but what else? That was his thing. What else? Well, what else is there? What else could you think about? What? How else could you have said this? And, you know, it's like, we're we're taught in school that you know to get the right answer, right? That's the whole point of school for many of us is to get the right answer. Right. Yeah. And the problem with that is it teaches us that two things that are incorrect. One is that there is a right answer, and number two is that there is one right answer. 
And I worked for years with a guy named Warren Starnes, who I think you've met. Um, I have. And, and he was never satisfied with the right answer. He wanted 10 right answers or better, 50 right answers. And then choose. Then he would choose the best of those right answers to move forward. Um, and I, and I, I, I kind of like that idea. I, I, I like I like the idea that there isn't a right answer, but there may be many, and and it's 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 sort of taking the easy way out to stop at the first right answer. Hmm. I love that. And I don't, I don't know how that applies to what we were saying, but it, <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's consistent with what you were saying about the ultra marathoner that um, we often stop when we think we're used up or when we think we've got the right answer, we stop too soon. We all stop too soon. Yeah. <laughs> well, I cut you off. You were, you were going to start uh, sharing about your, the, the failure you had in mind. Yeah. I don't know if this is my ego, but the failure I have isn't really a failure, but it was a huge failure. Um, <clears throat> and it, but it's not a failure like, I did something wrong or we didn't do something correctly because we did everything right. Um, this was the uh, 72 foot solar dish that we designed, um, had one set up next to the university of Phoenix down there by the, by the airport, um, actually got it up running work, running on sun, generating megawatts. And, uh, obviously we were just burning, burning the electricity up into toasters, they wouldn't allow us to put it on the grid because we were too unstable. But we demonstrated that it could be done. And not only that, we demonstrated that it could be done um, at, a, at a price that was competitive at the time with oil, which when we were doing this, oil was $150 a barrel. Mm. And this was a huge lesson because by the time we got it done and demonstrated and working, oil was $30 a barrel and nobody was interested anymore. And so the failure was the failure to anticipate that. I mean, I, I think eventually somebody, I mean, well, the Chinese bought the dish and shipped it to China. Uh, but I think that the, the, the lesson learned there is one is if, if you're doing something that's working, do it faster than you think you can do it. Um, and, and the other is to, that there's, there's so much more than simply being able to accomplish a task and accomplish a task on budget. That's not enough for a device, for a consumer product, for anything. It, it has to, there, there has to be a fit. It's almost Darwinian. You know, a lot of people misunderstood what he said, but if you read his book, Darwin didn't say the survival of the fittest. He said survival of the fit. And what he's talking about is is the niche that things that different species fit into. And if they fit in a niche that works, they survive. If they don't, they they are gone. And the same is true with engineering products, whether it be as something as small as a little consumer item or as huge as a 72-foot or a field of 72-foot reflective solar dishes. If the niche isn't there, it won't survive. It makes me think of uh, validation and verification. I always get the two mixed up. But one is um, 
are you designing the device correctly? And the other is, are you designing the correct device, right? Where you have exactly. to make sure that, you know, you have a device that actually fits the market that people want. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Um, what advice would today's Michael give yourself when you were a brand new engineer that you wish you had known back then? Hmm. That's a complicated question. Um, I, I guess what comes up first is um, just to, to know more that it's, it's not enough. You know, I started off as a, I, I restarted my engineering career in the plastics injection molding business, but it really wasn't enough. In fact, this is interesting. One of uh, a, a consulting firm that you and I shared uh, uh, time with um, let me go because I wasn't, my skills weren't broad enough for them at the time. Um, and I, I think that one of the things that we all tend to do and corporations, cube farms encourage is uh special specialization and getting to be really good at one thing. And I don't think that's enough. And I spent a lot of time getting really good at plastic injection molding, but what it really didn't come together until I was able to design a part for plastic injection molding, including the electronic components, the mechanically functioning and moving components. And when I was able to do all of that together, I suddenly became, I, I suddenly realized I had more value now to offer than I had as just an, an expert in plastic injection molding. Because it turns out as time goes by, anybody can be an expert in any one thing and actually Google's an expert in everything. But what, what we have, I think too few of in the engineering world or in any professional world or people that have a broader vision and are pretty good at, at a lot of different things. Um, and, and I think that that's, so my advice to me back then would have been to more quickly and sooner start branching out into divergent elements of the fields around me, electronics, mechanics, um, thermal transfer, you know, all, all of those things that, um, I know that certainly thermal transfer, I was so relieved when I was done with that course. I thought, oh, I'll never have to do that again. Well, turns out it comes up a lot, and uh, we're, we're dealing with it right now. I dealt with it a lot in the injection molds. Um, and so um, it, 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 you can never know enough about enough things. So I just I, I think it's important to keep. And, and it's also important not to just focus on on engineering things that you need to know about. You need to know about psychological things and you need to know a lot about sociological things and economics. And, you know, there's, there's so much to know and we have such a, a, an astonishing resources available to us now that we never had before. It, it's, there's no excuse for not continuing your education forever. Yeah, I, I agree. That's great advice. I feel like, if you're an employee at a really large corporation, maybe you can get by with having just one or two uh, areas of expertise. But 
a lot of us who are working as engineers aren't working in mega corporations. We're working in a design firm or a, a smaller company. And especially in that kind of setting, you need to be able to wear a lot of different hats. And if you can't, you're just not going to be valuable enough to the organization. I, I agree. And in fact, uh, there are horror stories. Some of our some of our employees have those horror stories of being in corporations where they discouraged uh, blending of fields. You know, you you are this. You need to do this, not these other things. All of you working for huge corporations out there that want a chance to do a lot of different and interesting things, come on over to Pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for spending some time and sharing with us uh, your wisdom and and some of the experiences that you've gone through. Um, I always love having a chance to to talk to you outside of a, of our typical, you know, PM conversations that we have. So um, thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, anything anything else that you'd like to say before we end? Just thank you. Thank you for thinking of me. I you find me more interesting than I do. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of other people are going to find you interesting. Yeah, you'll become an internet celebrity here. All right. All right. Well, Michael, thanks again. Thank you.